I'd invite you to take that Bible this morning, whether you brought one or it's there in the pew, and encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, certainly we come to one of the greatest books in the whole Bible, and possibly even this morning, we come to one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. It is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to raise dead sinners to life, and it's found in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And so, uh, what a great text. So many of us are familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but it is a wonderful text, and our time is limited today as we uh, have the privilege to send out David Morris, but it is a wonderful text, and we want to be careful to take it as we come, and I always like to say that slower is better than faster and quicker, and so there's so many truths in these passages and these scriptures here that in some ways I have to take out so much of that which I've studied to put it in some type of coherent fashion for you, but it is rich, it is deep, it is profound, and our church has always been and started from day one on the foundation of the Word of God. So let me read it for you in 2, 1 through 10, and we'll focus on those opening five verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray and then we'll look to the word of God. Father, how we are in the need and the hearing and the reading even of your precious word, Father, I would pray that you guide us, that you would illuminate the truth that you've already revealed, that Lord, even in a service such as this, that you would be pleased to open the eyes and cause the heart to see of those who have not experienced life. Some maybe have been sitting in this worship auditorium for months or even years. I pray that you accomplish your perfect will both here in this service and those watching on live stream. Father, we love you. We're grateful for the power of this word. May it be deeply penetrating to our own life that we may in one voice cry out and see your grace and be humbled by your precious salvation to those who believe. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Certainly, as we've been walking through these last months, these opening two chapters of the book of Ephesians, it is a, a book really of blessing. He said, blessed be the God and Father and one three of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. And so he blessed us, and we looked in chapter 1 at his blessing through the work of the Father who chose us, through the work of the Son who redeemed us, through the work of the Holy Spirit that sealed us. And then from that point, he in chapter 1 did Paul launch into a prayer from 15 to 23. And it was a prayer that we would begin to understand the depth of those blessings is the flow. And the specific blessing or the core one in 17 is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you or by the Spirit or a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. He's praying, is Paul in the depths of his inner 
inner being that we would understand something there that the Spirit revealed to us the wisdom, the revelation. And that wisdom and revelation doesn't come through some secret means. It comes through the knowledge of the Word of God. And so he's praying those depths into our heart. And one of his prayers, look at verse 19. He's praying that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He's praying that we would grasp in the inner man the depth of the power that is revealed to us. You say, well, what kind of power is that? Well, look at it at the end of 19. According to the working of his great might in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He's praying there for the power of Christ to be lived out in our heart and life. And then you remember in that prayer, he provided four wonderful illustrations to describe that power. It's not enough just to say that we'd understand his power. He describes and illustrates that power, and he does, through, does so through the person of Christ, that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave. That power that rose him is the power that lives in you. And then he exalted Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father. That power that raised him will also exalt us. That power that made all things subject to Christ. And that power that placed him as appointed head over the church. So he's praying that we would grasp and understand the power of God through the person of Jesus Christ. So as you come then into chapter 2, that power that was displayed in the resurrected, exalted Christ is the same power that resides in you and raised you from the dead to life. And so what Paul does, just the flow here in 2, 1 through 10, is present the transforming power of God in the life of a believer. Remember, we've said the last couple weeks, though chapter 1 ends and chapter 2 begins, it's a letter that he wrote. And he's really just continuing in his prayer that we would understand something of that power in our life. And Paul basically tells these Ephesian believers how in time their spiritual salvation actually took place. Really what you have in chapter 2, if you want to just understand the flow of it, is he's writing a spiritual biography of how you got saved. That's what this is. If chapter 1 looks from eternity past, chapter 2 tells you how in time, if you're genuinely saved here this morning, how you were saved. And so he writes this biography, and at least in terms of the big picture, the biography includes our past condition in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. In other words, what we once were. Then secondly, he talks about our present transformation in 4 through 7. What, ha what happened? How did he transform us? What did he do? And then thirdly, in verses 7 through 10, we'll look at our future submission, what we become in Christ Jesus. So he deals with our past. He tells us how we got saved. And then he tells us something of the future of what we become. Now we begin last week looking at that past condition. Let me just touch on that because it will make a real it will make a lot of sense as we come to the present transformation. But in that past condition, there were three bold declarations of our sinful past that reveals God's power in our salvation. Three bold declarations to show us this past condition. And I remember I told you that this past condition is brought forth not because the emphasis falls on your sin or my sin. He brings out the past condition so that you would understand the power of Christ in your salvation. So here's these bold declarations and we touched on them and I want to take you a little deeper 
always want to take you a little deeper. Always want to drive forth truth that transforms my heart and truth that transforms your heart. But under that past condition, he says, number one, you were dead. You see it there in 2-1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In fact, he goes back, does he not, to Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death results because of sin. And so death, Paul said in Romans 5.12, spread to all men because all men have sinned. Adam, if you go back and you think of that picture, died. The day you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. And as soon as he took that which was forbidden in the garden, God had warned him that the day you eat of it, you will die. And sure enough, Adam died. You say, well, Scott, he didn't die on the spot. But oh, yes, he did. He died spiritually to the things of God. That moment, that one sin, that one act of disobedience, that one charge of rebellion against Adam and Eve, they spiritually died. Death is not the design of God. Death was never intended. Death resulted in sin. Death comes through sin. And when Adam sinned, spiritual death occurred, number one. Secondly, he physically died in time. And then some people not only die spiritually, physically. Third, some will die for all of eternity, forever separated from the presence of God. So when Paul looks back at you, At your condition, before you came into a saving relationship with Christ, you were dead. Dead spiritually. No EKG on the heart monitor. You can't respond. You're not even alive to the things of God. You may be as I speak, dead as I speak. Walking death. Walking zombies. But he says, apart from Christ, here's why you need Christ. You were dead. And then secondly, he said you were depraved. You were depraved, and I'm using that word by choice. I could say you were disobedient, and that would be fair, but I just said you're depraved, and it was that depravity, and that sin is revealed in this depravity in three overwhelming bondages, if you will. In chapter 2, verse 2, you were in bondage to the world, you were in bondage to the devil, you were in bondage to the flesh. Not only were you dead, but you were depraved. In other words, beloved, and by the way, this is just 101. This is the gospel. You don't need the gospel if you don't know the bad news and you can't get to the good news before you get to the bad news. Before Christ, you were held in bondage to the world, the devil, and the flesh. Sin permeated your life. And so sometimes we just call this total depravity. You were not just depraved. The reformers used to say you were totally depraved. Now let me explain what that theological concept means. Depravity does not mean that every man is corrupt as he could be. It doesn't mean that. There's degrees and variations of sin. It doesn't mean that every man indulges in every form of sin possible. No, it doesn't mean that. Nor does a depravity even mean that a man cannot perform, I'll call it some external good deed. What depravity means is that the whole of man is affected. What it means is this, is that sin itself extends to every facet of your nature. It extends to every facet of your faculties. Biblically, we would say that we're not only dead but depraved because it extends to our will in the, 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 the ideal of doing right and wrong in Ephesians 2. It extends to the mind. But the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 17, we were hostile in mind. It extends in Romans chapter 3 to the affections, to the emotions, it extends in Mark 7, 21 to the speech and to the behavior. So depravity just means that within man, this is the Bible, there is no spiritual good. 
It says that apart from Christ, apart from God, that man is not capable of seeking after the things of God. You you say, well, why not? Because you're dead spiritually. So even though I read that, and you've read it thousands of times, you have to understand that there's nothing moving in your heart. There's no prompting in your own humanness for the things of Christ. Let me see if I can explain this to you. Humanism sees sin, if I have a box here, it sees sin at the edge or the periphery of life. Man, and just listen to the political speeches today, sees human beings as basically good at the core. But biblically, and a biblical view is that man's nature is that it teaches that sin permeates the core of our being. So you're not only spiritually dead, you're depraved. Let me bring up this slide. I drew you some pictures today. Is that okay? You can draw these down because they've, if it helps you, it helped me as a young pastor understand both deadness and understand depravity. Maybe I'll start with the middle one. There's humanism. That's university theology right there. High school theology. Elementary theology. It's what parents are teaching their children at an early age. That at the core, in the center, is goodness. Okay? What happens around the periphery is sin. And those are the bad people. Those are the murderers, if you will. Those are the the thieves. Those are whatever it might be in your mind. But at the core of man, some people believe, just listen to the speeches, is goodness. That's why I told you a couple weeks ago, don't be surprised by what you hear. Because what you're going to hear is that we're good. That we can do this. That we need to be united. That we can all come together. That we can all get along. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that at the core of our being, on your right, my left, is sin. And that it permeates, if you will, all of our heart. That is the biblical view. In other words, we're not good in the center. At the dead of our heart, in the center of our heart, at the core of our being, is sin. Shown in the will, shown in the affections, shown in the emotions, shown in the mind. You say, well, pastor, what's that one on the left? This is my illustration. I got this from an old friend, R.C. Sproul. What people think today regarding man is that the sun has climbed up on the top of the house. He's putting, I'm just making this up, Christmas lights on the house. And if you live in a one-story house, and you're putting up Christmas lights on the house, and somehow it's not you, let's call it your son or your husband or some young man, he falls off the house. Now, I suppose if he doesn't fall on his head, he's going to fall on his legs, he's going to fall on his arms. And this is what a lot of Christian people think, is that man has fallen off the house, And he got hurt when he fell off the house. So that sin, as he's born into it, as he's conceived in sin, as he chooses sin, he's fallen off the house and he's walking through life like this. That at the core, we still, some believe that he's still good. That he's actually fallen by nature. Adam sinned, and so we sinned. We, we get that we're sinners, and that's why Christ come. But man isn't totally depraved. He's just partly depraved. Or isn't the, what was that movie? He's mostly dead. Do you remember that movie, Princess Bride? He's just mostly dead. He's not dead. And in fact, man's not really dead at, at the core of his being. He, he's good and he fell off a house and so he limps. But that's not the biblical view. The biblical view, and I want you to see this, is th- this is a rendition when I lived in Chicago. That's the Sears Tower. The rendition is you're at the top of the Sears Tower or you're at the top of the Empire State Building, and you have fallen off. And you can understand if you've been around a massive building like that, and you've fallen off, 
you don't just break your leg. You get splattered, if you will, excuse the expression, on the bottom of the floor. In fact, they have certain things to guard the top of those high ceilings when you can see out by glass because if you were to throw something over on the side, you could kill somebody below because of the sheer speed of the trajectory of what you throw over. Listen, the biblical view of man is not that he's fallen off the house, but he's fallen off the Sears Tower. That within him, within his will, within his mind, within his affections, within his emotions, within his speech, within his behavior, depravity doesn't mean you're as sinful as you could be, but it means that it extends to every facet of your life. Let me show you this biblically. You can contact me if you want the notes. I'm going to move. I'm just going to take you to some biblical verses. Bring these slides up. Uh, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Maybe that's the problem. I think we compare our sin to other people. But when the Lord looks at wickedness, he saw that it was great on earth. The reason I'm, I'm pausing there, if I've preached many times in the early part of my life in ministry in prison, standing face to face with people who've murdered people in their family. Unbelievable. Because though they've murdered people in their family over the need for drugs that led to this, that led to the killing or the murder for stealing or whatever it might be, they had somebody worse in mind that was in the same jail for another sin that they didn't think was as bad. But when you compare your sin how God sees it and how God knows it, and when he sees to the core of our being, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It says in Genesis 8.21, the attention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil from his youth. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 9.3 that the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. Who of us doesn't know Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart, the core of our being is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it? And if you have time, it says in Jeremiah 17, 10, only the Lord. Only the Lord. This is where our depravity extends to every part. We're dead, we're depraved. Mark 7, 21, of course, the teaching of Jesus. For from within, not outside, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, come sexual immorality comes theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All these things, evil things, come from within and they defile a person. You say, why do people sin? Because it's in their heart to sin. Why do people make choices the way they do? Because we're sinners in fact, you know from the teaching of John, this is the judgment. In John 3, 19, Jesus said that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. You say, why is that true, Jesus? Here, because their works were evil. This is in the heart of man. Some of you, maybe I'm just playing a little bit of an apologist, you might have a hard time what I'm saying right now. And if you have a hard time with what I'm saying, then you don't understand how bad you were and in the condition you were to which God saved you. You say, well, maybe you're talking about people that are just outside of this and they're worse than me and I'm better than them. Well, the Bible says this type of depravity is universal. Second Chronicles 6.36 said, said that there is no one who does not sin. No one. Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
And the answer would be no one. Oh, you may be able to compare yourself to someone else. But if the Lord would mark your iniquities, who could stand? And the answer rhetorically is no one. Psalm 143.2, enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. I'll say it again. No one living is righteous before you. And that includes you and me, of course. Proverbs 29 says, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. And the answer is no one apart from Christ. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. That is powerful. There is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. What a statement. And of course, you know, you could repeat it with me. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own, what? Way. All of us have gone astray. In fact, the Bible says you laid on him the iniquity. It's part of the gospel of us all. Job 14, 4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And the answer is no one. I love Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? The answer is no. Can a leopard his spots? No. Then also you can do, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. You can't change who you are. Depravity means that within man, let me say it this way, there's no spiritual good. It doesn't mean that people can't do kind acts. I just was reading through the Bible in the book of Acts where Paul was shipwrecked and the, it says that the natives showed him extraordinary kindness. I get that. They showed him kindness because of the shipwreck. But that's not saving kindness, if you will. All depravity means is that within man there's no spiritual good. Apart from Christ, he's dead. He's depraved, secondly. And thirdly, and you know this, he's doomed, two, three. It says there, it says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest. Maybe that's the worst. You're dead, you're spiritually depraved, and in that category you are spiritually doomed. He says you're on a one-way ticket to hell. You are children of wrath. You say, well, why would that be? Because the Bible says that God's holy. And the Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. And the Bible says that because he's so pure and so holy that no unrighteousness could ever get into his presence. So the truth of the scripture is that if you've committed one sin, you can't enter into his presence. So you died, if you will, by choice at birth, or by choice because of your actions, and you die here by nature. You are by nature, it says there, children of wrath. You say, how do we bring about the change? Well, we can't. You say, but, I, but I, uh, how, do I, how do I alter my heart? You can't. You say, well, I, I want to I change my child's heart. You can't. You say, but I just want to make this decision. I, I want to get baptized somehow. Maybe that will make the water pass over me and I'll be better. Or I want to serve in this church. Or I want to get my life right in 2021. You can't. <laughs> you say, why? Because you've fallen off the Sears Tower. You didn't fall off a house roof. You fell off the Empire State Building. You fell off the Sears Tower. And there's no life in you. You are permeated by sin. But listen, that's not the end of the story. Nor did he tell us this past condition that we wallow in it. Praise God that what man cannot do, God did. Amen? You say, well, what did he do? Look at the text. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, 
Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, underline this, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That opening phrase in 2.5, those opening two words could be the two greatest words in all of the Bible. But God, what you can't do, and what you can't do by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, and what you can't do through good works, God is pleased to move into the sinner's life and spare them. But God, in other words, Something happened in the biography of your present transformation. You say, well, what is it? You were, well, once spiritually dead, verse 1, and he made you alive. You were once walking in the course of this world, and then all of a sudden he made you alive, and he prepared you for good works in Ephesians 2.10. So get going with those works. You were once dominated by the course of this world, but God now has put you with Christ in the heavenly places. You were once in, under the bondage to the devil, but God placed you in Christ in verses 5 and 6. You were once a son of disobedience, but now he made you his child and made you his workmanship. You who were once an object of his wrath have now become a recipient of his love. But God. Now listen, beloved, in the context, that's power. In other words, the power of God, here's the exposition, that took Jesus out from the grave and exalted him into glory is the same power that raised you. He's illustrating the power of God in our salvation. You say, well, what changed our past condition? Well, there's only one remedy to our lost condition. It's God in verses 2, 4 through 7. So, beloved, listen, here's the transition. If 2, 1 through 3 portrays our lost condition, 2, 4 through 7 describes our present transformation. Pastor, he made us alive. Well, uh, what do you mean by that? How did we presently transform ourselves? Well, as you know, we don't do it. He did it. And in our, under our present transformation, there's two, two keys to it. Bound up in God's character, who he is, and then bound up in what he did. He made us alive. First, God's character, who he is who he is, maybe you'll understand the depth of it. Look at 2.4. But God being, and then it says, here's his character, rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. You say, what is mercy? Mercy is God's compassion. Uh, just on a broad picture is what the word Elias means. It's God's compassion. When you think of mercy, it's, it's God's pity. It's his pity. You, you could even put it this way, that it's his active compassion. It's unreserved kindness to sinners. That's you, that's me. God gives us what we need, not what we deserve. He gives you in your salvation, mercy, mercy. But look, he doesn't just mention mercy, and I think we understand it, but God being rich, I love that phrase, in mercy. We've already seen in chapter 1-7 that God is loaded with grace. We've already seen in one eighteen the riches of his glorious inheritance, he says in 3.16, he speaks of the riches of his glory, but now he speaks of God's character to understand your salvation. He says that he's rich in mercy, that he's wealthy, if you will, in mercy. He's affluent in mercy, so that as you put this together, he's not only a God of righteous wrath 
in 2-3, but he's a God who's rich in mercy, rich in compassion, rich in pity. Don't you remember this text in Titus 3-5 that it says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. You know that. Not what we've done, but according to his own, what? Mercy. It was his pity on you. It was his compassion on you. It was him reaching down into your life, not your family's life. It was God being rich in mercy, even when you were dead in your trespasses, you in this present transformation with his mercy. No wonder Peter said in 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. Listen, there's none of us, not one, not one here who has ever been saved by the decision we've made. If you've come to the end of yourself, you understand this about the gospel, that God is holy, that man has sinned, that man has separated himself from a holy God, that there's nothing you can do to put an EKG back into the electrical cardiogram to pump life in yourself. No, it comes because you know a God and a God knows you and he's rich in this type of mercy. Paul said it this way in Romans 9, 16, that it, that it depends, do you believe this? Not on human will, I don't think 80% of the churches believe that. I mean, if we can just do something with the lights, just do something at Christmas, if we can just take out the organ, if we can just take out the, the Bible and the rack, if we could just take out the hymn book, if we can just freshen this up, if we can just be attractive to the unbeliever, we're going to be winsome to them. <laughs> winsome to dead people? Winsome to people who aren't alive? No, God is rich in mercy. So Paul says it doesn't depend on human will. It doesn't depend on exertion, but on God who has, what? Mercy. Now, this meaning of mercy, I don't, I don't have time today to take you too far in this, but it is so deep. And it's evidenced by the fact in both Hebrew in the Old Testament and in Greek, there's various words that give various meanings to mercy. Sometimes it's translated kindness. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. It's connected with the Hebrew term hesed, which speaks of the loving kindness of God. It refers and comes out of his grace. It speaks of his favor, of his pity, of his compassion, of his steadfast love. Mercy is God's compassion and pity to forgive sinners in our sorry condition. Can you imagine what this was like for Paul? A Hebrew of Hebrew, trained by Gamaliel, according to the law, found righteous, blameless, he begins to hunt after Christians. He's going from city to city, throwing them in jail, bringing, if you will, letters to cast them into jail. He's standing at the stoning of one of the biblical characters, holding his coat. So Paul said this, you can get it in 113 of Timothy. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, okay? A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent but he said, but I received, what? Mercy. Listen, if you walk out today, just know if he redeemed you, it's because of his mercy. I mean, I can take you back to my life. I was convicted over my sin. I was convicted. Who did that? The Holy Spirit. I came to the realization that I was doomed apart from Christ. Well, who told me that? I came upon this scripture. Who brought that scripture to mind? The Holy Spirit. Every single blessing that we have is a result of the mercy of God. Salvation is based on that mercy, who he is. But not only mercy, look at the text. He's not only rich in mercy, but it says in 2.4, because of the great love with which 
He loved us because of the love of God. That's who he is. He's a God of love. You know this. I've taught for a few years on the gospel of John. Obviously, this is agape love, the Greek. This is sacrificial love. This is sacrificial love for you who were dead in your trespasses, who were depraved spiritually, who were on a one-way ticket to hell, and he made you alive. Why did he do that? Love. He loved you. He loved me. Now you might be saying with me, why did he love me? Well, no reason. He showed you his mercy. He showed you his love. He extended his love to you even when you couldn't respond to him. God shows his love, Romans 5.8, you know this, and that while we were still, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10 says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So we're sinners, we're enemies. Listen, GCV, nothing in you. Nothing in me made us worthy or attractive to God. Nothing. You say, what did I do? Nothing. He breathed life into you. He took dead people and he made you alive. Listen to how C.S. Lewis said it, and it's a bit wordy, but I, I like the end of it. He said, God, speaking of his character, who needs nothing loves into existence holy, superfluous creations in order that he may love and perfect them. And he begins to speak about the creating power of God and he says he creates and sees and so God doesn't have, um, God's not bound by time. So you know that when he looks down, he looks at Moses and he looks at you right here. When he looks at Moses, he can see Christ on the cross. It's all one consecutive picture that the Lord knows it all. But he said this, if, if I'm making sense. He creates and sees, and he's speaking about the cross of Christ. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. The flayed back pressed against the uneven stake. The nails driven through the medial nerves. The repeated torture of back and arms at his time and time after time. For breath's sake, he's hitched up. Lewis said, here in his love. He said, this is the diagram of love itself. The inventor of all loves. End of quotes. Listen, it's because of his mercy. It's because of his love. It's because of who he is that he's loaded with mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's who he is. You say, well, what did he do? Look back at the text. He says in 2.5, first in 2.4, but God. And then he says in 2.5, but even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. It, the thought, putting it together here, prompted by his love, wealthy in his compassion, even when you were dead, God, here's what the text says, made you alive together with Christ. So what, what is that? Well, what do you mean he made me alive? Well, you can go back to your salvation. But to be made alive, biblically, theologically, and I don't mean to confuse you, is to be born again. When you became born again, Jesus said you have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. When you became born again, that's at that point where he made you alive. So to be made alive is synonymous to be born again, John 3. And it's also part of the theological package when we say to be regenerated. To be regenerated, beloved, is to be given new life. It's to be made alive. It's to become a new creature, okay? 
It becomes, he, begins, he changes your heart. He makes you alive. So let me put it this way. If you want to understand it, you could write this down. It is an act of God is to be made alive or born again or regeneration. It's an act of God by which he imparts spiritual life to you. So what do you mean? Well, he imparts it to you. Biblically, you are passive. What do you mean passive? You're dead. (laughs) I'm dead. You're depraved. I'm depraved. You're doomed. He comes into you through the scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he breathes life into you. You did not choose to be made alive. You did not choose to be born again. God was acting upon you. Listen, uh, I'd say it this way. The only way a dead person can be made alive is by the one who is alive himself. And it says in Romans 4, 17, he is the living God who gives life to the dead. You say, what, what, what happens? Well, something like this. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And you're walking according to the pattern of this world. You are caught up in bondage to the world, to the world system, to the flesh, in the mind. And you're caught up and in bondage to the devil. And your life is ever moving like this for your life. You don't care about God. You don't love God. You don't care about truth. You don't really want to be about truth. You're just moving about. You're a walking zombie. You're just, you're a walking dead. You're not alive to God. You're dead to the things of God. You're dead to a passion for God. I I probably should keep going. The world owns you. You're caught up in the music. You're caught up in the fashion. You're caught up in the deeds of the world. You're not even subject conscious to the thought of God. And in being in the world, you're under the bondage of the devil. Maybe not satanically controlled by the devil, but because the devil is the God of this age, you're caught up and he's your Lord. He's your master. He's the one actually that is controlling this environment. And then you're caught up in bondage to the flesh of the mind, of the body. You're dead to the things of God. But then all of a sudden, God moves into your heart. He makes you alive. He breathes truth into you. He causes you to be born again so that your life doesn't do a 360. That's what a lot of people do. Your life does a 180. He changes you from the inside out. He makes you alive. He breathes life into that heart of stone and he makes it a heart of flesh and you begin to walk this way. You're probably thinking perfectly. No, never perfectly. But you begin to walk after the things of Christ because the spirit was placed in you. He breathed spiritual life into you. And when you got off your knees, he changed you from the inside out. He caused you to be born again. He regenerated you in your heart so that the things that you used to love you now hate and the things that you used to you know go after you now just are polluted by them and you're walking towards Christ you who were once committed to yourself and to your pleasures and of your mind and in bondage to the devil in the world now all of a sudden you got a new master and a new joy and it's the Lord Jesus Christ listen that's something of what it means to make you alive Let me just say it this way. You say, well, is that a process? No. Regeneration is an instantaneous event. In other words, he might be leading people over time. I understand that. But when he redeems you, he stamps, if you will, justification on that. And he redeems you. It happens only once. All I can say is one moment you're dead, the next you're alive. God made you alive. Just as Christ called Lazarus out from the grave, so too with you. Let me read you just a quote here by Stephen Sharnock. It's been in my files and in my mind for probably over 30 years now. He's, and it's in his book on the doctrine of regeneration. It's a phenomenal book. He says, the frame of the heart before the new creation and the frame of the heart after bear as great a distance from one another as heaven from earth. As God and sin are most contrary to one another, 
So an affection to God and affection to sin are the most contrary affections. He said it is quite another bent of a heart as if a man turns from north to south. The heart touched by grace stands full to God as before to sin. It is stripped of its perverse inclinations to sin, clothed with holy affections to God. He abhors what what, what before he loved and he loves before what he abhorred. He is alienated from the life He was alienated from the life of God, but now alienated from the life of his lust. Nothing would before serve him but God's departure from him. Now nothing will please him but God's rays upon him. He was before tired with God's service. Now he's tired with his own sin. And he just goes on to talk about the radical, radical, what I would probably call just normal transformation. You, you say, well, pastor, if he breathes life into me and I'm passive, then he gets all the glory. And the answer would be what? Yes. But I'm not done with the text. The text is pushing towards one other thing. Look at it in 2.5. He made us alive together with Christ. And then what does he say? By what? There's his emphasis. Grace, you have been saved He's spoken of this grace, but he says this is a major theme, and we'll look at it next time together. In other words, on the basis of grace, you have been saved. Grace, of course, is a gift. Grace, of course, is God's favor. In other words, God saw you, me, in my pitiful condition, and he made you alive, and by grace, you are or have been what? Saved. In other words, no longer on a one-way ticket to hell and separation from God. He saved you. Saved you from what? Saved you from hell and saved you from the gospel. Listen, beloved. This is the gospel. This is what the reformers said, sola gratia. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we should be the most thankful people on the face of the earth, right? You say, Pastor, do you have an answer why he saved you? No. Other than he's loaded with mercy. Other than he loved me with the love, a great magnitude of love with which he loved me. Other than that night, on my basketball court at the age of 14, I was just struck by a harpoon that came out of heaven. And in that one split second, I went from living for myself to driven on my knees to confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so listen, this is what our church is all about, amen. This is salvation. You say, well, Scott, do I pray for people? Absolutely. Do I preach the gospel to people? Absolutely. Because it's the word of God that makes sinners alive to hear the word of God. So if anything, at Christmas time, we ought to be people, Lord, open my mouth that I might be salt and light, not to a dying generation, but to a dead generation in which we live. But don't be surprised at the world in which we live. We'd be in the same place apart from God.